everyone. Welcome back to Poem Peeps and to our final episode dedicated to ATS 2023 annual conference. Uh, we did a couple episodes direct from the conference. We hope you enjoyed them. But the conference is so packed with high quality content that you really can't view it all while you're down there. So we wanted to make sure to discuss a number of sessions and material uh, and so that everyone could listen. Christina, have you recovered from your ATS 2023 experience yet? Hey, Burp, uh, just about, you know, I'm still processing all the great talks that I heard and, you know, following up on meetings when, you know, you run into people in the hall and, you know, just getting to make some connections. So it was a great time and looking forward to ATS 2024. Uh, but as you said, Burp, you know, definitely too much. I couldn't make it to everything, but just really excited that we get to revisit one of the um, sessions today because it's, it's a really important topic and glad to have some guests join us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think some of the talks are so interesting and there's obviously a huge amount of exposure having your talk at ATS, but even more, we like to share some of the really important topics that we're passionate about and hope that we can reach even more people. So that's what we're doing today. So today we're doing this in partnership with the Critical Care Assembly uh, and the symposium that one of the symposiums that they chose to staff this year and that we are talking about today was called Fail Smarter and Learn Faster moving beyond bystander training to organizational strategies to reinforce DEI pipeline, diversity, equity, and inclusion pipeline in pulmonary and critical care. Yeah, such a great um, topic, as we said, Firth. And you know, I think a lot of us have been trying to learn about this and become more familiar just so that we can enhance our trainees and you know make sure that we're recruiting a diverse amount of uh, fellowship trainees. But the field's still really lacking in expert discussions. So we still have a lot uh, a lot of room to find out more about this and really cause for implementation um, and interventions. But fortunately, we have two great guests joining us today who were the chairs of this symposium. First, we'd like to welcome Dr. Liz Vigilante. Liz started out at Duke where she received her medical degree, and then she moved on to Michigan where she completed her residency as well as fellowship. She found time, I don't know how Liz, um, to also get an MPH and as well as completed a Master's of Science in Health and Healthcare Research at the University of Michigan. Currently, her research focuses include persistent critical illness as well as sexual harassment within medicine. Thanks so much for coming on Palm Peeps today, Liz. Ooh, I'm super excited about this. This is going to be a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's our pleasure. Uh, next, we have Juan Celadon. Juan is a professor of pediatrics and a professor of medicine, epidemiology, and human genetics at the University of Pittsburgh, where he's also the division chief of pediatric pulmonology. In, in addition to his MD and, uh, and his pulmonary pediatric specialty, he has a doctoral degree in public health. His list of accomplishments is far too long to fully go into here, but he is a world-renowned researcher. He's been recognized for his scientific achievements by multiple societies, including the ATS and the American Pediatric Society. He leads a large NIH-funded research initiatives, uh, and he's the author of literally hundreds of publications. So we're really honored to have you with us today, and, and thanks for being on Poem Peeps. Thanks so much for your kind introduction. It's truly a pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I also want to acknowledge your co-chair, Daniel Hidalgo. He uh, was part of the planning for this. He unfortunately couldn't be on to record with us today, uh, but we just want to mention that he was one of the integral drivers of the symposium as well. And we're really excited to dive in, but before we do, just our standard disclaimer, this podcast is not meant for specific medical advice and the views that we all express today may not reflect the opinions or policies of our respective employers. These are our own. Thanks so much, Burp. And to get things started, Liz, we wanted to get your perspective on uh, what we think is a really important question. So some of the interesting background around this session was that despite strategies to recruit and retain women and underrepresented minorities in medicine, 
the COVID-19 pandemic had an outsized impact on these specific groups. And we're hoping you could just share, you know, a little bit more about this impact and any other um, thoughts you have on this topic. No, I really appreciate that question. Um, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, there's been work that has started to come out when we think about what keeps women in academic medicine um, and what are the big factors that you need to stay in academic medicine. And there are like a, a couple tenants out there. One of them is you publish or perish, uh, which I think you start to hear as a resident and as a fellow and certainly as an early career faculty member. You need grant funding, uh, certainly to, in order to be promoted throughout the academic ladders. Um, and you need to kind of rise in leaderships, whether that's within your institution or national or international communities. And so some of the work pre-pandemic was already showing disparities uh, with women in academic medicine and either publications not being first or senior authored, not getting grants because of their gender or having lower success rates, I should say, in terms of uh, independent funding. Um, and then society leadership, I think, has been the other big thing where you've seen the growth of mantles. COVID-19 work is just coming out. Uh, we're only three years since this pandemic really hit, but certainly work has begun to show that women were not first or senior authors in even some of the big studies that came out of COVID-19, uh, that their publications weren't as high as men. I think the funding cycle will be really interesting as we start to see what the ramifications are. Anecdotally, you heard a lot I had a lot of my male colleagues that were like, oh my gosh, all the papers, all these grants that I'm writing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I have two kids at home and two puppies and like, I'm losing my brain. There's no way I have time to write a grant. Um, so I suspect there will be disparities that begin to emerge from the funding cycles. And I think from a conference, national, international, you start to get to these invited talks, who's at these platforms. And Mantle's really started to get highlighted a lot. And this whole idea that you could use Zoom as a media, I think, you know, 2021 and COVID, we had ATS was like virtual. Um, and so whether or not that was an ability for women to actually make presence, their presence known. Um, so I do think, you know, the implications of COVID we're beginning to see in some of the research. I think the longer term implications we'll see in five to 10 years in terms of pipelines uh, and what happened to women and other minorities, really, throughout this pandemic. Yeah, that's really helpful to think about. And, you know, now's the time we should be talking about, probably should have been talking about it before and through, but maybe we can still bend that curve so that five to 10 year uh, numbers don't look so different. But uh, thanks for reviewing that. So the title of this session also talks about moving beyond bystander training to more durable organizational initiatives. And for the session, you all described the need to move beyond bystander training and implicit bias tests alone as a way to sort of move forward. You know, I unfortunately think that a lot of people are even pre this stage. You guys are moving beyond to better techniques. And I think there are still probably a lot of people out there who are not even familiar with bystander training and implicit bias testing. So Juan, could you describe for our listeners who may not be familiar what you're referring to with that and why that alone is no longer adequate to address the inequities within pulmonary and critical care? Sure. That's a great question, uh, Dave. So you know, a bystander is somebody who witnesses or observes an act of discrimination from a perpetrator against a victim, right? Um, now, that person may not be aware of the situation, uh, and this is, you know, somehow common, still, unfortunately, may by choice, if the person is prejudiced, not act, or may take a stand. Uh, against the action, interrupted or challenged, right? 
So the purpose of bystander training in general is to uh, train individuals to become upstanders. Uh, that is, you know, people who can take a stand, interrupt uh, in different ways so the situation, you know, doesn't continue or, you know, furthermore uh, prevents the situation from recurring. The problem uh, with using that strategy alone is that it relies too much on individuals. And so unfortunately, my experience, uh, younger people are more sensitive you know, to these situations. And by being young, they are often in vulnerable positions. So they may uh, be afraid of speaking up right, uh, feeling retaliation or sensing that their concerns are not going to be addressed. So unless that occurs in a system or a culture where the person feels comfortable and more importantly, there is action taken uh, by standard training alone is not sufficient. Thank you so much, Juan, for um, shedding some light on that. And something that you said I think is really great and kind of goes into our next question, though, about how some bystander training um, is just relying on individual you know, commitment right now. And what we really need is an institutional commitment to DEI um, to help with some of these efforts. And you know, the first portion of the symposium that you were in was entitled the diversity bonus, not just a URIM issue. And Liz, I want, wanted to go back to you, though, just to see, can you tell us a little bit more about what was discussed during this talk and why it's so important for really everyone um, in, in medicine, but, you know, specifically we're talking about pulmonary and critical care medicine today to be aware of these concepts? I truly appreciate that question. I think it reflects a lot on what Juan said. It, it starts to move away from individuals more to organizational and institutional responses. And granted, individuals make up institutions and organizations, so you do have that that interrelated connectedness of the topic. But part of it is, as this country is dealing with all these changes that are coming through with affirmative action and everything else, is how do we now begin to look, it's not just counts. It's not just that you need X number of Hispanics, X number of women, X number of African-Americans in your schools. Like There's more value than just the absolute numbers of individuals and that there's everyone gains when there's diversity. It's not just the individuals that are from the underrepresented minority groups that are coming into these institutions, but so is everyone else that's in the room. They gain from the perspectives, from the lived experiences of other individuals. And that's an important thing that we really need to put value to. Um, and that really, the first talk that we had at our symposium was so eloquently done and stated of how much we gain as individuals when we're in diverse situations, how much institutions gain when they have a diverse cohort of individuals working there and students that are learning there, and how much patients gain, which is a whole other sector of who we all are trying to help at the end of the day. And I do think it's this whole quest of trying to get to a greater appreciation and value like, how do you actually quantitate the value of this um, so that we can all buy into it instead of a small select core group of individuals, which I feel is like is happening in a lot of institutions where you have a DEI dean or a group that's responsible for DEI activities and everyone checks off the box of like, check, we've done it. We're good. We've met our quota. We've done the things that we're supposed to do when really there's so much more that needs to be done and so much more learning and reiterations that need to occur to ensure that diversity actually meets its goals and people are learning and 
it continues to grow and flourish unto itself. I know Juan has a great relationship with her first speaker um, and had some great questions at the end for her about how this diversity adds to everything that we need to do in pulmonary critical care medicine. And we are a predominantly white male society at ATS, but yet the patients we serve aren't just all white men. And Juan, I don't know if you want to add, because I think your questions and you had recommended our first speaker, Dr. Reed, who was fantastic. Yeah, no, I think, Liz, you made such a great point, right? I think when you uh, listen to the narrative that some groups try to drive on EDI, right, it's sort of trying to argue that uh, the white majority loses uh, by increasing diversity. And that's a fallacy. Uh, first of all, you know, we're still at less than 10%, uh, you know, fellows uh, who are from groups underrepresented in medicine, in pulmonary and critical care. Those are the most recent stats. We haven't made much progress, you know, over the last decade, right? Secondly, um, you know, when you think about equity, health equity, which it's part of the drive to increase diversity, there are numerous studies that show economic gains in other words, if you increase respiratory health equity, you save enormous amounts of money, you know, over a trillion dollars uh, in health expenditures, right? So there's so many ways in which diversity, in addition to uh, better productivity in research, creativity, you know, the fact that groups underrepresented in medicine tend to care for underserved communities more. They tend to, to go to the communities they came from. So all of these things are true, but everybody gains. That's a very important point. Everybody, not only women and minorities, but society as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's for stressing that. So many interesting things. I mean, this really is a very apt time to be talking about. It's always an apt time to be talking about this, but especially with the recent decisions. I'm a little bit of a Supreme Court junkie, which has been a depressing uh, progression recently. But, you know, one of the things they talk about is how the diverse communities are hard to measure a benefit in colleges. You know, it's not there. There's no abstract question in my mind about the positive benefit it happened has in hospitals and for patient care. Right. Like there seems to be so many studies showing the same thing. And so um, it, it's such an important point to stress. So I'm glad that we're glad that there was a whole session on it and that we're talking about it again today about that how everyone benefits. So a number of the talks address different aspects of supporting DEI among faculty members in academic medicine. And these included broad discussions, which ranged from how to get promoted and how to retain URIMs, how to improve recruitment, how to help people obtain supportive funding where we know there's large disparities. You know, and an issue that was addressed in relation to this was in assessing and transforming culture, which I think is sort of the underlying bedrock of a lot of this. One, I wanted to ask you what you, in a long career addressing this, what are sort of the main cultural and systemic barriers that were discussed at the session and the challenges that you see arise in, you know, at a systems level for supporting DEI in academic medicine? That's a great question, Dave. And at least started to sort of allude to this, right? So I'm going to, uh, to start by saying the, the particular issues that, that women and minorities face. So... Let's think about something as childcare. Uh, you know, during COVID-19, young women in academic medicine uh, took a disproportionate burden uh, of the effects of COVID-19. As Liz uh, mentioned, right, they had to uh, take care of their families, and now some of the kids were not going to school. 
they also had were asked on occasion to do more time clinically you know, in the ICU or console service right and they are expected to in the context of all this keep writing manuscripts and grants you know it's just not realistic so, uh, you know, I think there is increasing recognition, there is pressure on NIH and certainly on institutions to help with things as simple as childcare, right? I, I think that it's not the only issue by far, but, you know, it would help, right? In terms of minorities, you know, um, there are several issues. One that was alluded to is the minority tax. The sort of uh, misguided belief that the group that is being victimized <laughs> is also largely responsible for addressing, you know, victimization uh, and not having our colleagues as allies, right? Uh, it's sort of similar to he for she, where, where men, you know, should support women and white colleagues should support minority colleagues and participate in EDI activities. It's often the case that a minority faculty will be asked to be in every single diversity uh, committee there is without getting any recognition for that, either in terms of uh, effort, salary compensation, promotion. Uh, I think some schools have you know, recognized this and are changing the promotion uh, criteria. Uh, but, you know, a need to to increase that wellness, you know, make sure that people are supported, that they have social networks of people who, you know, are, are like them, that are facing similar issues. All these things are, are, are things to, to ponder and, and, and act on. Thanks, Juan. That's so true. I was just talking to a colleague last week about some of the several of the topics that you just mentioned and how you know, further recognition um, can be given for, for them because they do, they, they're on like all of the, the diversity councils and, and leaderships and, you know, they're asked to take photos and it's just a lot of, a lot of things to try to, to carry on um, going forward. So I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad some institutions are really trying to change that. And a follow-up question for, for both you, Liz and Juan, you know, a lot of the work that needs to be done is really about cultural transformation, as we um, alluded to um, with, with our last question, which can obviously be extremely difficult to influence. Are there any key kind of day-to-day -day things that listeners could do themselves to support cultural changes at their institutions? I'll start with you, Liz. Anything that you want to add? I think one of the things is you have to talk about it, right? I think one you have to acknowledge that there's an issue um, and that no institution is perfect. So I don't think there should be anyone out there that's like, we got this settled and like, we're good. Because the reality is we can all improve. Um, and having discussions with meaningful action plans of like, and this is how we're going to do it, and this is how we're going to measure it, and being the individual to ask, and not relying perhaps on your underrepresented minority or female colleague to be the one of like, what about this? I know faculty meetings, for instance, uh, before my time used to be held at 7 a.m., for the men, no one had ever said anything. And then finally, uh, one of the female, early career, who's now like a full professor and tenured and like off in the world, um, I had mentioned that she raised her hand and was like, I can't do 7am. Like that's prime childcare drop off. Uh, and one of the other male colleagues was like, yeah, me too. I can't do it either. Like I need to do childcare drop off too, which then normalized the experience and faculty meeting is now at 1230. And now they have it varying throughout the entire day so that all faculty can try to make one of the meetings over like three months. But it's stuff like that that I think gets people to start to recognize 
it's not a one-off. It's not just that individual. This is something that many people are struggling with and we can normalize it so that no one feels left out or excluded or, oh, it's childcare or it's elder care or it's some whatever it is. Um, I think those type of things begin to change the culture. It's no longer maternity leave, right? It's parental leave. You, you normalize things so that things that benefit everyone will also benefit women and those that have often been stigmatized or asked to do the double the work. I think those are the steps that we need to start thinking of um, as we move forward. So I, I'll build on what, what Lisa said. Before I forget, I'd like to uh, refer our listeners to ATS Scholar. The second issue of 2021 is entirely devoted to workforce diversity. Uh, there are outstanding articles there uh, that I think are worth reading for those who are interested. Uh, so, you know, building on what Liz said, I think that it has to be part of the DNA of an organization, right? As Liz said, people have to talk about it. You have to be very deliberate. Uh, I think that, you know, having a vision statement for diversity is great, but unless you act on it and you see tangible results, right, nothing is going to change. So in one of these articles, I, you know, there is not a single recipe for everybody. It's like all politics are local, different institutions are going to be, but there are some commonalities, right? So I think one of the, the, the uh, main issues that you start with is metrics and goals, right? So where are you right now? Uh, institutions across the country are very different uh, points. You know, UCSF is a leader, just to give you an example and in, in this space, and there may be other institutions that are not as far along, right? So where are you? Once you know where you are, where do you want to be, you know, in the short and long term? What are attainable, reasonable goals that you set up for your division, department, you know, to increase diversity or in all an inclusion in all levels? So that's one thing that you start with. The second thing that I believe is important, uh, it's sort of recognition and awards. And that takes different, you know, forms, right? It could be things like, you know, an award for who, for equity, the diversity and inclusion within your division, recognizing that, uh, making sure that this is part of your promotion uh, criteria. If it's not at your institution, you discuss that and bring it up because I think it's important, right? Um, and then, um, you know, in terms of recognition, it's important to make sure that leaders are also diverse. This is a point I make in every talk. So for many years, you know, when you I went to these meetings, everybody was concentrating on young people and recruiting them. But then nobody <laughs> made it to division chief or department chair. And that's extraordinarily demoralizing. You know, if I'm a young uh, African-American, Latino, I'm a young woman, and everybody's a white male or most are white males, uh, you're like, what's the point? Particularly once you start to have negative experiences, right? So it's sort of the audacity of hope that Obama introduced, you know, having other people that sends a powerful message, you know, to others coming along. And then the third thing is to be sort of proactive uh, you know, and that in, in some of these uh, talks and papers, community outreach, you know, it's a simple way. And, you know, in your group, you can start something like that. 
So, you know, we have uh, alliances with the schools. We have, a, a, you know, um, a school that is predominantly African-American close to our hospital and our fellows, you know, participate in programs, uh, you know, to reach that community. It could be participating in uh, community engagement programs, you know, within diverse communities, anything you can come up that show a tangible involvement, right, of your group and yourself uh, in, in this space. So That's fantastic. We will definitely share out that uh, a link to that issue of ATS Scholar to go through. And, and it's really just always helpful to have things enumerated of, of all the ways that we can be focusing on this as a group. I want to turn to a specific session uh, that you led during the symposium, Liz. Uh, this really caught my eye. I, this enti- it was entitled Actions Speak Out Louder Than Policies, Institutional Variation in Holding Patients Accountable for Inappropriate Behaviors. You know, I think this is one of these uh, unrecognized burdens in the hospital that comes up so much. I certainly know that it's a huge topic uh, of discussion in recent years of how do you address inappropriate, unacceptable behavior from patients while you're still maintaining a patient-centered care. And I think a lot of people in the hospital don't know how to handle this and be supportive of their colleagues, even if they want to be or if they witness it. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit uh, about your talk. I appreciate that. I think it's a hard topic. Uh, it's not a topic that we necessarily always feel comfortable talking about either, even amongst ourselves, um, that patients can sometimes be the culprit of some of these really bad behaviors and or aggressions or even microaggressions. But certainly the Me Too movement kind of helped to bring that about and bring attention to it. And it stems from that, really. Like when I initially started the work on patient-perpetrated sexual harassment, we were looking to try to understand how do we deal with it and how do institutions deal with it, both from a provider training perspective, like what do we tell our trainees? And also what do we tell our patients in regards to like patient bill of rights and responsibilities? And honestly, I thought like after those two publications, the work had been done, everything would be great. Look at all these variations and these gaps in policies in terms of what we expect and what we tell our patients and our trainees. Uh, But lo and behold, it's not really all that simple. It never really is in in research, right? Where policies can exist out there, uh, but the implementation of them can really, really vary. And so the talk actually diverted a bit from that title, from what we actually, and what I actually presented. And part of the diversion occurred because it was so hard to try to figure out the implementation of said policies. So what we decided to do instead in that talk was actually talk about institutional variation of self-reported sexual harassment, in part because that's another big unknown area within medicine. It requires databases that actually have institutions and residents that are participating in those institutions that are reporting sexual harassment. And so we actually were able to find one database that had said data, where we have institutions and we have interns that reported sexual harassment and the experiences of sexual harassment. And so in the symposium, we actually highlighted that there is variation actually amongst institutions in the United States of interns that report sexual harassment. And with that, there are some high and low performers there's also variation among specialties in medicine uh, with some, some uh, types of programs, pediatrics, as compared to the surgical services, having less or more reports of sexual harassment. I do think it's a nuanced discussion, which is the one thing that I continue to highlight, because just because you have interns reporting that they're experiencing more sexual harassment at an institution doesn't necessarily mean that institution is worse from a culture perspective, right? It can be a two-sided coin. 
where interns are reporting more sexual harassment because they feel comfortable reporting it, or they're reporting more sexual harassment because they really are being sexually harassed more. And like teasing that apart, I think is the next venue and like the next big question of like, how do you begin to figure out which of the two is it? Because it's important to really know. But that was kind of the big takeaway from the actual data that we presented at the scientific symposium. And then I blended in the policies, the patient bill of rights and the policies of what we tell our trainees in terms of expectations for how to handle patients uh, who are inappropriate. And it was only a notable thing. I threw it out there as a like, think about this. But the top two programs that had the least amount of reported sexual harassment also had really good policies on how to handle patient-perpetrated sexual harassment and had clear guidelines on the patient bill of rights and responsibilities, unlike the worst two hospitals. So perhaps there is some implication for like the culture and what's captured in policies and what the repercussion is for like the interns and what they're reporting. Do you happen to remember any elements of those policies that you thought were helpful for people to know if like say they're thinking about implementing policies at their own institution? If not, we can reference back to the papers or anything. There's really one good institution, and I won't name the institution, but there is one institution out there that has really good guidance for their trainees of like, if a patient harasses you, you call this number, you report it to this person, you hand this patient off to this individual, and you're done. Where a lot of the other policies are like, tell someone and maybe report it. But the real question that I struggled with as a resident and even as a fellow is like, but what do you do with the patient? Like, if they're outpatient, you can probably get them out, but if they're inpatient, hot potato, right? And that was like notable from like the training trainees from a patient bill of rights and responsibilities. I think the language needs to be consistent. Like what the patients are entitled to is definitely like care without harassment. And there were almost all policies actually are really strict about the patient bill of rights. The patient bill of responsibilities, I think is where hospitals can really improve upon where the language should mimic their patient bill of rights. Um, And all too often it's either missing or the tone of the language is like, just be considerate of your providers, which I think is the bare minimum that you would expect, right? So the bare minimum should probably be equivalent to the patient bill of rights. And I think that's stuff that individuals can look at at their own institution. Like, what are we telling our patients as a way of looking at the culture for their institution? So much for sharing that, Liz. And as you said, definitely room to improve and glad to have you as a leader in this area. And, you know, excited to see what you and others are able to put out to really kind of help change um, institutional policies going forward. Uh, Dave and I are just so happy that you're joining us today because we're really diving into some topics that aren't typically covered. And, you know, we're just scratching the surface with some of this information. Love to hear a little bit more from both of you about the session itself. You know, I know, Liz, earlier you said that it ended with a panel discussion and some great questions I'm sure came up. So we're just hoping you could uh, both tell us about some of the topics that came up and anything you found particularly interesting. And Juan, we'll go ahead and uh, start with you. I will briefly add one thing, you know, that that was also that, that we mentioned, and that is a lot of people don't recognize that there is a lot of longitudinal funding, you know, for DEI efforts. Uh, so I'll share with you here, uh, we have an R25 grant. These are underutilized. Those are summer research programs for undergrads. And ours is just for persons underrepresented in medicine. Uh, and we pair them with people doing hair lung and blood research, right? Just to introduce them in, in And then there is for residents, the R38, 
you know, which you can also tailor to, you know, to equity, diversity, and inclusion if you want. And then the T32 or F32 or F31 that, that Liz mentioned. But there is a way that institutions, you know, and Pittsburgh is one of them, uh, can align these things, right, to, to build something that is sort of a continuum to, to increase uh, EDI. I think um, it didn't come up in the panel discussion, but a talk that I think was super intriguing, and I'm hoping I get the actual references from, were some of the NIH people that were actually at the session. Because um, remember, one of the ways you stay in academia, at least on the tenure track side, is money. You need money. Um, and so hearing their thoughts of what is the NIH doing um, to kind of help support underrepresented individuals uh, within the grant fundings and what other programs are there, which they highlighted the loan repayment program, which everyone should look at if you have medical school loans and you're on a T32 or on a K as a way of paying back the $250,000, $300,000 that you have in debt. Like there are certain things um, that I think were really, really important to hear and to like reiterate F32s, F31s beyond just like ours. Uh, I think the other really interesting part that I'm still delving deeper into, and if I get the references, I'm happy to share, is the NIH stances on passing on perpetrators and not wanting to pass the perpetrator on to other institutions, which uh, you see, I think Davis and some of the, I forget what other program has implemented this already and how they're screening faculty members uh, when they're hiring them. Uh, I think it will be really curious to see how our funding institutes kind of help to shape culture change too by putting their money where, for lack of a better term, their mouth is, right? Like I think money makes the world change as well as goodwill and persistence and perseverance. So those were the other talks that I found really intriguing, some dynamic as well. And if I get those references, which I just asked from the NIH people, I will be happy to share those so that others may have a chance to peruse through them as well. Yeah, you know, I, I think that um, I tend to be an optimistic person, perhaps, you know, to a fault. Uh, but I think it's important that we collectively realize that even though we have a lot of room to improve and to move forward, we have made some progress, right? And I think it is important for people to know uh, that success is possible. Uh, you know, through some examples and some things that were said, you know, Liz just mentioned some, others did. I think that's important because you need to show that that things can work to sort of motivate others to keep working on the field. And I did mention at the end, right, um, at the ATS, for example, uh, the society is not the same that it was 10 years ago. You know, it's uh, it's. <laughs> It may escape younger people because they were not there when I started, but it was really a completely white male dominated society, uh, you know? And when you look at the proportion of women uh, in the board of directors, you know, as presidents over the last decade, uh, minorities, there has been substantial improvement. And it's been a battle, you know, uh, but it's a battle that has, being won at times and you know the, the the fight will continue there are a lot of issues that we can improve on and i think for me that's important that's a point that liz made at the beginning when joan reed who was the dean of community and diversity engagement she's an african-american pediatrician at harvard 
had many conversations with Joan. And, you know, when she started, uh, sort of <laughs> somebody without her stamina may have given up, right? Um, I know for a fact that there were, there were many meetings where she could have been discouraged and a lot, but she persisted and has had a substantial impact, not only there, but nationally. So. There's so many great points. I'm really glad that you both brought up one, the fact that, you know, institutional and the money drives a lot. So we have to look about how it, it comes out and how it's used and how we can creatively use the existing mechanisms there. And then two, one, I love your point to that there's progress, you know, because I think that really helps people. There's tons of work to do. There's tons of progress to be made, but I, I've certainly heard people be despairing if they, if they don't recognize that progress either. So uh, thanks for pointing those out. You know, I'm sure it's a great panel of speakers. I really wish I could have been there. I wasn't at ETS physically this year. And I've said I'm not going to miss another one. Uh, but we, we'd want to look forward to the future, too. So we'd love to know about next steps. You know, if you have another session at ETS next year, what would be the additional topics? What are the next things to be discussing? You guys have already brought up so much. But, you know, where do you think ETS is going? Oh, man, that's a great question. I don't know. I'm like, we just finished the last ATS. You know, I think ATS as a whole is making movements towards trying to better understand its membership. Who are the membership? What the membership wants, I should say. Um, where are the gaps in terms of representation amongst the different speakers, amongst the different leadership committees that are within ATS? Um, I think time is of the essence. I, I would be curious to know, not next year, but in a couple of years, how the needle has moved. We've had scientific symposiums and or PG courses over the last at least four or five years that have talked about this, uh, which is fantastic. And we were programmed at a prime time as well, which I think speaks to like the movement, perhaps, of wanting to see this in not in a Wednesday afternoon slot, not to dismiss anyone that was on a Wednesday afternoon slot. But I would be curious to see how the membership, how things change in terms of who's speaking, uh, who's represented and who's not. I agree with, with what Liz is, is saying. I, you know, I also love to see more uh, on, on, the, on the area that I touch on, community engagement. Um, how can you engage the communities uh, you serve, you know, uh, to increase EDI and how does increasing EDI uh, improve engagements, uh, engagement with the communities you serve? I, I think that would be a very nice topic, quite frankly. Absolutely. And certainly I'm not experts, uh, but I'm going to add my own if ATS is listening to consider where their conference is being held and how maybe local policies could impact the people who are attending the conference would be uh, a positive change. I hope that they will take into consideration. Well, we like to end every episode with a key fact uh, that we learned or just a takeaway point, you know, from a great conversation, because this really was one. You know, I think my takeaway point for this, I, I'm going to just do it to amplify the message that there's a whole ATS scholar issue, the second issue of 2021. We'll make sure we post the link. But certainly, I think that these types of issues can go overlooked. And, and hopefully, that's a great resource that people can reference back to. So that's going to be the thing that I take away and, and look into right after this. Uh, Christina, what about you? Yeah, thanks for I mean, I think I'm going to share Juan's optimism. I, mean, I know there's a lot of great um, kind of interventions. And at least we're talking about this and, you know, ways to move forward. And then I really liked how Liz just brought up normalizing things. So for if I know you had to miss ATS and I was uh, sad not having my sidekick, but having to normalize that you had to miss because you were to choose to highlight your family and um, your time on parental leave uh, is very understandable. 
Yes. Yeah. I hope to. Right. Right. Thank you. Thanks for recognition. I appreciate it. Uh, Liz, something our listeners take away? I think the different funding mechanisms that are out there, it's not just for those that are writing ours, but perhaps even for those that are in your undergrads, but that there are other ways of supporting the next generation that we can all look into. More the merrier. You know, uh, EDI is a big tent and we welcome everybody. And as I said, I'm an optimist. You know, I have two daughters uh, who are champions of feminism and social justice. And I think the next generation gives me so much hope, uh, you know, to continue this work. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This has been a great last 45 minutes. Uh, Thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. This episode was written, produced, edited by myself and Christina Montemayor. The music's original music by Eric Rogers. And we'll see you in two weeks for our next one. Have a good one.